North Untapped is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. In recent weeks, cries from corporate media and opposition parties about alleged foreign interference in Canadian elections by China have reached a fever pitch. One politician, Han Dong, was recently forced to resign from the Liberal Party caucus amid such allegations, which he vehemently denies, and were leaked from anonymous national security sources. With near-daily news reports amplifying these and similar allegations, critics have raised concerns about an emerging McCarthyism, which conflates dissenting opinions on government policy with malign foreign influence, and risks worsening an already disturbing tide of anti-Chinese racism. Further, as written by author Listen Chen in a recent article for The Breach, such narratives erase the complexity and diversity of opinions within Chinese diaspora communities and simplify the issue at hand to a struggle between Canadian democracy and, quote, shadowy Chinese agents. Chen writes, The sudden examination of the loyalties of current and former politicians of Chinese descent smacks of a contemporary yellow peril. As China's global presence has increased, so has alarmist discourse about it. I'm Alex Kosh, Managing Editor of The Maple, and I'm very pleased to be joined by Listen this week to talk about their article and the concerns that it raises. Listen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Alex. Uh, so can you just start by telling us a bit about yourself and the work that you do? Sure. I'm a communist writer based in Vancouver on occupied Coast Salish territories. Um, I say I'm a communist writer because communism is the political horizon that I write toward. I uh, first came to a communist politics um, as a as an organizer that was a member of a small group called Red Braid Alliance that was interested in kind of testing the utility of revolutionary theory and politics in low-income, mostly street communities in struggle. Uh, that group dissolved two years ago. So since then, it's really through writing and thinking that I've been um, uh, continuing my engagement with uh, communist thinking. Super interesting and uh, always always refreshing to have uh, writers like you be so upfront about their perspective and the, the, the political position that they're coming from. So in a recent podcast episode, uh, we, my, my colleague uh, Davide Mastracci and I, looked at some of the problems with the reporting on these allegations of foreign interference. But your article highlights some examples and areas that we didn't actually uh, touch on. So to start off, could you give us a refresher of the basic problems with the reports on this story and maybe some specific examples that you think are particularly noteworthy? Mm -hmm. I was interested in writing about this, particularly from a BC perspective, because here in BC, various panics around um, what we could broadly call Chinese interference in the province have been cropping up over the past uh, eight years or so. Um, so first, it was the narrative championed by um, David Eby, who's now the premier, but was at that time the NDP's uh, housing critic when they were in the opposition, um, forwarded this narrative that rich Chinese people were meddling in the housing market and, and causing the housing crisis. That then um, spilled over into Chinese people um, laundering money through casinos, which was fueling the opioid crisis. And so for those of us in BC who've been uh, attempting to critically intervene in um, uh, the use of Sinophobia to um, explain pretty complex social and economic problems and, and contradictions in BC, um, it, I think you know, we can't help but feel a, a sense of deja vu as um, uh, claims of foreign interference in uh, primarily in um, elections takes on this this uh, national scope. Um, so I'd say the if we 
understand this latest panic as um, one of many that have come before it, then it, it becomes quite clear that we're in this atmosphere of anxiety over the rise of China and that um, that kind of uh, imperative to defend Canadian and Western imperial interests can really lend itself to all sorts of different narratives that that cast doubt and suspicion and paranoia and um, cast Chinese people or representatives of the Chinese state as interfering in something that uh, is otherwise going well, is totally normal. So this, uh, you know, casting China, Chinese people as like these unusual or exceptional um, agents that are messing up a system that otherwise would be fine, I think, um, is uh, the kind of the, um, the basic logic um, of foreign interference, whether or not we're talking about elections or the housing crisis or or money laundering. That's such a key point. And that's a really great example that you cite about the housing crisis in British Columbia. It really seems now it's, it's, it's very, ca- I mean, I actually used to live in BC. Uh, and when I was there, it was very common to hear people casually, yeah, just blame Chinese people essentially for the housing crisis without kind of grappling with the, the deeper like class analysis that's behind this, uh, this, this, this terrible situation with the housing market and very quickly that overspills into anti-Chinese racism, demonization and like hysteria about alleged foreign influence uh, for sure. And, and as you know, this is kind of part of a, you know, the reason we're hearing so much about this now, it, there's a backdrop of a larger geopolitical situation that's kind of undergirding this current panic about alleged foreign interference so why is this coming to the fore now? Like, what are these geopolitical factors that are at play? I mean, broadly, it's the rise of China, right? This has been uh, a source of anxiety for the US-led West for uh, a decade, two decades. Um, and I think what the what China's increasing geopolitical influence and economic weight in the global economy poses um, to the West uh, is what uh, what. Um, we might call a crisis of hegemony or a crisis of authority. And I think that's been, I mean, that's just the the kind of global stage um, that these politics have been unfolding on for many years now. Why the foreign interference panic over uh, elections right now? It's hard to say because it's been in the air already, you know, and there was... Um, Already, the the Conservative Party responded to some of the um, outcomes of the of the last federal election by whispering about Chinese interference, but it's only really catching on at a national level now. So I think it's really hard to to pinpoint um, the kind of precise reasons for this iteration of panic around China because it's been kind of constitutive of of global politics for for years now. Um, I think it's clear that Canada and the U.S. certainly are only ramping up tensions with China, um, starting with, you know, the um, uh, extradition of Meng Wanzhou and then, you know, most recently Biden's CHIPS Act. So there's this kind of escalating tension happening. And I think it's um, in that context, it's completely unsurprising that domestic politics are going to take on some of those anxieties and, and mobilize them. Um, for political ends, in this case, you know, for the opposition to to delegitimize Trudeau's government. So, yeah, I mean, I think they're just uh, there's just such an availability of anti-Chinese panic because of the decline of the U.S.'s global hegemony and that of its allies in relation to China's rise. Um, so, I can expect that 
you know, we're just going to see a continuation of various discourses that arise that that mobilize that fear of China and fear of the West's decline. Right. This has definitely been a slow burner over several years or many more years than that, in fact. Uh, And now it's just this kind of like, I guess, an explosion of of years of this anxiety about Western hegemony. And what your piece does a really good job of, I think, is is making clear that this this puts ordinary people of Chinese descent in Canada at at risk. This isn't just uh, jostling up against the communist party of China, this is actually impacting on people's lives here in Canada. So can you tell us a bit more about that and like, you know, how this is putting people of Chinese descent in Canada at risk and in danger? When we're talking about the the kind of anatomy of, of a moral panic that scapegoats a particular marginalized group, I think it's useful to think about the outcomes or the effects of that panic on two levels. One is the more explicit or manifest effect where, you know, in this case, there's a search for politicians who've been tainted by their activities or relationships with Chinese organizations or state bodies. And perhaps some legislation is going to come out. You know, people are talking about the the Foreign Registry Act or or creating a foreign registry. So there is the surface um, most obvious um, immediate effects, which I think is clear is directing um, a McCarthyist paranoia toward especially politicians of Chinese descent. But there's also a more latent um, effect, which is to throw gasoline on grassroots racism, a kind of a trickle-down effect. And we see that in a, in a subjective expression of anti-Chinese racism that is going to occur outside of you know, official institutional state channels, outside of legislation. So when we're looking at, um, for example, BC's panic over Chinese people causing the housing crisis, well, the explicit effect was some legislation taxing foreign buyers that gave Canadian property purchasers a competitive edge. And then also a noticeable um, outburst of anti-Chinese racism that was already occurring and being uh, reported in the media in in 2018, 2019, prior to the pandemic, which of course led to another surge of anti-Chinese racism. So I think you know, we have to think about ideology as having a deeply, a deeply subjective character. So whenever you're blaming um, a, a group for for some sort of social ill, even one that's largely constructed, ideologically, that's going to trickle down to, um, to the sort of grassroots uh, racist initiatives. I guess I would also say that if we do see laws criminalizing foreign interference in Canada, similar to the ones that were passed in Australia, um, they're they're most certainly going to disproportionately target Chinese people and continue to legitimize anti-Chinese racism in ways that we're also going to see expressed in the streets in in random attacks of of hate um, and hate crimes that um, Canadian politicians have no problem speaking out against, but cannot connect to um, the ways in which panics about about China and legislation based on those panics legitimizes um, the very acts of racism that they uh, they claim to see as having no place in Canada. Right. I, I think that's such an interesting point you highlight as well that, you know, there's this question of like, who gets accused of foreign interference and who doesn't get accused of foreign interference, even if they are, you know, in a very kind of basic sense, are engaging in some kind of foreign influence. So in your interview with um, David Brophy, who's in Australia, yeah, he makes the point that foreign lobbies and interests interfere with domestic politics all the time, but that China has been singled out for special 
scrutiny. So could you first tell us a little bit about like, you know, the situation in Australia and then bringing it back to, to Canada? Like, you know, what are some other examples of Canadian politics being influenced by by foreign actors that don't get this kind of attention? Yeah. So I was speaking with David Brophy because he's done um, a lot of work to intervene in Australia's anti-China panic. He wrote a book called China Panic about it. Um, and he and I talked about uh, legislation that Australia passed in 2018 called the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act, which basically criminalizes a whole range of activities that, for better or worse, were normalized in Australia. And the problem with that legislation in Brophy's eyes is that um, it's it's going to disproportionately affect Chinese people. So, you know, the example he mentioned to me is, you know, it's uh, unlikely that the Australian government is going to uh, crack down on on people and organizations that are part of the Jewish diaspora that have some sort of relationship with the Israeli state and advocate for policies that are pro-Israel within Australia. So whether or not these activities um, are good or bad, the problem is that legislation passed with this in this in this anti-Chinese uh, climate is unlikely to affect uh, everybody equally. It's going to going to seek out Chinese people. So, you know, an example of the kind of disproportionate focus on China in a context where there's other um, uh, interests lobbying governments is um, in 2019 in BC, there was a big um, hubbub over the union of BC munip- municipalities, allowing the Chinese government to uh, sponsor a reception during their annual convention. So this is just a whole bunch of um, cities uh, in, in BC that come together. They're, they took, I think, about $6,000 from the Chinese government, which was sponsoring this reception, it's less than half percent of the total cost of the convention. But certain politicians were um, calling it out, whipping up a kind of moral outrage. And um, the Union of BC Municipalities ended up passing some sort of edict against accepting any money from from foreign governments, but they continued to allow corporations to sponsor the event. So if you look at a list of sponsors of the most recent convention, you'll see names like Coastal Gaslink, Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, the BC Council of Forest Industries, Trans Mountain Expansion Project. So these are private corporations that have been at the forefront of the the war against indigenous sovereigntists who are defending their territories from from pipelines. Uh, But you don't see politicians whipping up a panic over that. So why the disproportionate focus on China? Well, I think that, again, um, gestures back to this geopolitical stage where China's rise is salient. It is new. It does impose on a global status quo that the US-led West has enjoyed for many decades. And then domestically, Canada, of course, has its own history of of yellow peril. So both within Canada and outside of Canada, there are these forces and histories that uh, just make it very accessible uh, for for politicians and demagogues to to point to China and to exceptionalize China. In my opinion, there's no doubt that the Chinese state is committed uh pretty bad human rights abuses and that that's often what gets cited when uh people are attempting to justify these exclusions or this specific focus on on china but they never apply the same moral standard to to other states that are committing in my opinion equally heinous abuses uh such as israel as you as you cite there and then <laughs> that's so funny that, that, that example you cite of the uh bc um 
UN conference like saying, yeah, well, we're happy to have our fossil fuel capital flowing in our coffers, but don't make sure there's no no Chinese money in there. There's also this vagueness around like what counts as foreign interference. So like, you know, you cite some examples of people who are just expressing opinions that encourage Western states to pursue, you know, somewhat less hawkish policies. Uh, and these people are at risk of being targeted as foreign agents you know when they're not they're not necessarily in agreement uh with with the chinese uh government's agenda they they just don't want war <laughs> uh, can you tell us a bit more about that yeah so in the article i, I interviewed xiaobei chen who's a sociologist um based at carleton university and she penned an open letter calling out a global news article that had some anti-chinese imagery in it um and kind of w- was premised on the trope that all Chinese people are kind of pawns, uh, mindless pawns of the of the um, Chinese Communist Party. And uh, she told me she was shocked to hear at a book launch by the author of that Global News article, Sam Cooper, that her petition was an example of the infiltration of you know Chinese uh, drug dealers. Um, communist spies and uh, billionaires in Canada. So, I mean, that's an example of a Chinese person who was just calling out what they saw as anti-Chinese racism in in uh, in uh, a news article, and then was um, equated with um, a, a Chinese communist spy. So. I mean, in a Cold War climate, the bar for Chinese people to prove loyalty um, is incredibly high. You've got to be a vehement, anti-communist, anti-Chinese, Communist Party broken record. Otherwise, um, you're going to be subject to suspicion. And your dissent, disturbingly, is uh, really easy to dismiss as, as evidence that you know, you're you're a state agent or you're brainwashed or you're operating on disinformation. So... I mean, I think the the big problem with that is that it really narrows the space for dissent against um, Canada's policies, both domestic um, as well as foreign policy. Um, it just really creates in a, a polarized atmosphere where like discourse is increasingly going to fall into really extreme positions with no room for nuance or difference. You know, I can think of another example. So in the last Vancouver municipal election, there were the 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 mayor who won, Ken Sim, is of Chinese descent, and he beat the incumbent. And in a global a Globe and Mail article, there was a quote by um, a Chinese uh, pro-democracy activist claiming that one of Vancouver's new city council members who moved to Canada for grad school from China um, held favorable views on China. That's all this person said, which, I mean, why is this even being quoted? It's such a it's such a vague comment, but the fact that something so vague can um, seem to be so full of meaning, I think, uh, is a symptom of this kind of Cold War climate where just saying that somebody who grew up in China holds unknown but favorable views on China is uh, suddenly a huge controversy. And uh, it turned out that this person was mistaken and they they later retracted the comment after a bunch of the city councilors' um, colleagues kind of spoke out in defense of him. But, you know, reading this article, I had I found myself wondering, how is this even news? 
that, that somebody might hold favorable views on China, but that's how how low the bar is to to trigger a kind of um, McCarthyist suspicion of your loyalties. Right. Yeah. The, the 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 threshold of evidence is incredibly low. We've seen that pretty consistently throughout all of these reports. Um, I want to pick up on that really important point you make as well. That like we're we're often presented with a very limited cross section of Chinese diaspora viewpoints in the dominant media. So we're either warned about members of the Chinese diaspora being basically duped by you know the the shadowy hand of Beijing, uh, or we're told about the views of hardline anti-communists who you know want to basically want to overthrow what, what, what is in what is currently in place in China. Um, there's a huge degree of nuance uh, missing in these presentations, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's missing is that the, the vast majority of the Chinese diaspora isn't going to fall into um, a black and white um, camp of either being pro-China to an extreme nationalist extent or anti-China um, to a hawkish extent that calls on the West to to intervene in in China's uh, domestic issues. So I think, you know, from speaking to other members of the Chinese diaspora, my sense is that what the foreign interference narrative bumps up against, but in a very problematic way, is that a large portion of the Chinese diaspora is alienated from Canadian politics. So in these claims of, you know, disinformation um, circulating on WeChat, which is a Chinese state-owned social media platform that a lot of uh, especially mainland Chinese people are going to have access to. I mean, if people had access to Chinese language media that spoke to their interests and intuitions, they likely wouldn't be relying solely on WeChat. And so in a lot of these um, kind of hysterical panics around the political activities of the Chinese diaspora, I think... um, when we look at them, what we really see is an anxiety over Chinese people being politically active and not falling into a very narrow, pro-Canada, hawkish, anti-communist, anti-Chinese state position. There's a lot of anxiety around around that and around the notion that some members of the Chinese diaspora might um, identify some of their interests as being um, represented by the Chinese state or as being against the actions of the Canadian state. I think what's missing is um, in, in this, uh, you know, fixation on the hand of Beijing and disinformation and brainwashing is the possibility that in the same way that Canadians can slip into Canadian nationalism and see their interests represented by the Canadian state, the same thing is true of the Chinese diaspora. Um, but it's a racist double standard to chalk up Chinese nationalism to brainwashing and Canadian nationalism to to good common sense. You also noted the, uh, the the kind of added complexity of defining what counts as foreign in a settler colonial society like Canada. Um, so, like in that context, like how is this concept of foreignness interpreted by the state and then subsequently, I guess, like weaponized? Well, in my article, I think Xiaobei Chen does a really good job of speaking to racist discourses, always ideological, which means that it's essentially empty. Of, of meaning. It has to draw meaning from historical contingencies. There's no fixed meaning for, for racial discourse. So, you know, when we look at the word foreign, uh, the root word for it means uh, door in Latin. It just means outside. So as soon as you, you um, 
start talking about foreign, all you're doing is referring to an outside in relation to an inside. And I think that it's that vacancy of meaning that um, allows the concept of foreign to take on so much emotionally loaded, really potent fears and anxieties around the borders of inside and outside. So, I mean, I think at a most immediate level, whenever cops and the state are talking about foreign in this panicked way, what that does is justify a policing of the boundary between inside and outside through increased resources, through cop power, surveillance, the power of CSIS and the RCMP. But if we're thinking critically about how slippery the meaning of foreign is, I think it becomes clear that that hard line between inside and outside is largely hallucinatory. I think it's very much a product of this kind of illusory vision of the Canadian nation as a homogenous, monolithic, unitary um, body that has no contradictions of its own around settler colonialism or class, race, these sorts of differences that are really antagonistic and, in my opinion, cannot be solved um, except through uh, revolutionary politics. And so my read on the concept of foreign and why it has such a deep emotional draw is that it taps into um, racial anxieties around difference um, and then really channels them toward um, this outside and this promise that we can purge the, the alien um, outside from within Canada. Um, but I think in reality that uh, it's really mixing up a whole bunch of different social contradictions within Canada. You really can trace back by starting with foreign as um, an ideological category, you can really trace ideology back to its deep, deep subjective appeal. Uh, I think there's there's really no way of understanding how seductive this concept is to people and how it can mobilize such pronounced emotional responses as well as um, material resources um, without kind of um, investigating why it has such a such a um, psychic power for people. Totally. I, I think that's really uh, astute and, and clearly articulated analysis, uh, which is really useful for understanding this issue. Uh, this, therefore, I guess, presents us with a larger challenge of like, you know, in the kind of broader sense, where do you see this trend heading? And then what can be done by uh, media and civil society to kind of you know, at, at minimum, avert the very worst outcomes of this very, this very toxic narrative that's emerging. I mean, so in your last question, you're you're talking about how foreignness isn't interpreted by the Canadian state, um, and I would say if we're if we're looking at the precedent set in Australia, then you know, in a, in a pretty immediate way, the risk is that we're going to see an expansion of the state's powers to criminalize. Um, different kinds of political activity that until now haven't fall, fallen under the purview of the law, but are maybe subject to some sort of moral outrage because of the way they tap into Canada's uh, anti-Chinese um, sentiments and history. So I think looking, keeping an eye on um, what are the legislative changes uh, that are being proposed and how will they increase police power and do we want to give cops more power to surveil and criminalize people. Um, I think it's a, a fair assumption that they're going to disproportionately focus on Chinese people. In this case, given that geopolitical context, I think criticizing that, intervening in that, opposing in that is um, 
a concrete thing that people can do. My fear is that if we're unable to mount an effective and anti-imperialist intervention into these increasing tensions between the West and China, that the worst outcome would be an outright war. I know there's lots of opinions on whether or not that's likely, given how uh, kind of imbricating global capitalism is at this point. But the danger is that the kind of fear-mongering and scapegoating that we've seen in BC, that we've seen um, across Canada, are ideological preparations for war. They make a population much more culturally prepared to get behind a war because they rely on um, reproducing these polarizing binaries of good and evil, democracy and dictatorship, um, the good guys and the bad guys. So, you know, I think in the immediate sense, intervening in any sort of expansion of police power, and then also keeping in mind that um, fostering uh, consent for these sorts of narratives that um, cast China and Chinese people as the boogeyman really dangerously paves the way toward uh, a hot war. A very important and uh, stark warning. Um, thank you for <laughs> the clarity with which you've uh, articulated the problem at hand and also uh, your, your really great article analyzing the, the kind of nuances of this complex uh, issue as we sign off here do you want to tell listeners where they can go to to follow your work and uh, or any anywhere else you'd like to direct people uh, people can find more articles i've written just by googling my name um, and in addition uh, the group i mentioned at the beginning of the interview red braid alliance um, one of our last acts as an organization was uh, producing a manuscript that's going to be published by arp books this year um, the title of that book is a separate star and in there, I have a couple chapters um, relating to China. One is on the nature of the Chinese state, which kind of revives and returns to the debate over the character of, of China as its socialist, as a capitalist, but specifically from the perspective of strategy for revolutionaries in the West. Um, I write about the rise of um, the Chinese Canadian middle class diaspora, kind of uh, thinking about work that's been done and how the Irish became white. If you've heard that phrase before, um, and thinking about how uh, the the imperial struggle um, to contain China is opening up, perhaps maybe an illusory, but nonetheless a lure for um, the Chinese-Canadian diaspora to maybe assert their allegiance to empire and in so doing kind of um, uh, find a way to exit a, a racial marginalization. And uh, I also write um, uh, about multiculturalism and race in Canada. So if people are interested in these ideas, then I'd encourage them to to keep an eye out for that book. Super interesting. I'll, I'll certainly be uh, looking out for that book. I'm very excited to, to, to see it. Uh, thanks again for joining us. Listen, really appreciate your, your time and your work on this issue. Thank you. North Untapped is a podcast brought to you by The Maple. To support our work, please go to readthemaple.com and press subscribe. Thank you for your support.